We're referring to the name of the sermon as the last Passover. And that's not because the Passover isn't still practiced all around the world and will be very soon uh, in all sorts of places. But it's because it was the last Passover before Christ became the true Passover lamb. It was the last true Passover because it was fulfilled in the coming and the death of Jesus. And so let's read together. We're going to read the first section of Mark chapter 14, and that is a, a gathering in Bethany. We're going to read uh, verses 1 through 9 to start with. Now the Passover and the festival of unleavened bread were only two days away, and the chief priests and the teachers of the law were scheming to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him. But not during the festival, they said, or the people may riot. While he was in Bethany, reclining at the table in the home of Simon the leper, a woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume made of pure nard. She broke the jar and poured the perfume on his head. And now some of those present were saying indignantly to one another, Why this waste of perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor. And they rebuked her harshly. Leave her alone, said Jesus. Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you. And you can help them any time you care to. But you will not always have me. She did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. Truly, I tell you, wherever the gospel is preached, throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. It's an amazing little encounter that takes place in what we would call Jesus' safe space. During the week after the triumphal entry, Jesus is actually staying in Bethany, which is on the opposite slope of the Mount of Olives to Jerusalem. And this is where Martha and Mary and Lazarus lived, arguably his adopted family. This was his safe place. And he was there, and he'd spend the nights there. Then he'd go down in Jerusalem where the events that we have studied in these last couple of weeks have taken place that have set the stage for the betrayal and the arrest and the ultimate crucifixion. And so this is really the last event in Jesus' safe place. He's in a home. It's the home of Simon the leper. He's not a leper at this point, but he's stuck with that. Not because he has leprosy, but because he had leprosy and Jesus had healed him. I wouldn't mind having a name like that if it was a testimony of what God had done dramatically in my life. Maybe you could think through the different things that God has done in your life, and that could be your hashtag, Simon, hashtag the leper. And so this is a gathering of people whose lives had been touched by Jesus, who loved him. Lazarus was there. Lazarus, who had been dead, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. And, of course, Martha and Mary were there. And uh, John gives us a very fuller account of not only this, but the event that we're going to look at in just a few moments, the Passover feast. But John mentions that it's actually Mary, the younger sister of Martha, who comes with an alabaster jar filled with nard. I, I have a picture of an alabaster jar I think we can put out for you to look at. 
This was a solid piece of stone that was hewn into a jar. And imagine the work to hewn out that opening inside the bottle, a solid piece that had been hewn. And the reason why an alabaster jar was what precious perfumes were held in was because of that narrow tapered uh, neck. Because the idea of, of precious ointment was that you use just a little bit at a time. And this was pure nard. Most of the times, nard, which is one of the more precious of the, of the oils and, uh, and scents in, in the Eastern world, it only came from India. So it was very expensive to bring in. And most of the time, it was only a percentage of what people bought and used. But this was pure nard. This was enough nard. Not only it cost what a full year's salary would be for the average person in its day, but it was enough to last a person a lifetime, just a little dot at a time, uh, just to smell it. And, and what the Scripture says that Mary does is that she breaks the jar, which means that she, she broke it at that neck because she didn't want just a little bit. She wanted to expend it all. Has this extravagant gift, this act of honoring Jesus. She broke the jar and she poured the whole perfume on Jesus. Mark says that it was on his head. John gives us more detail and tells us that it was also his feet. Now you may look at this and find it an odd thing. And the thing I want you to understand is that anointing the head of a guest of honor was a very common thing uh, in a Jewish home in its day. In fact, there are references to it that Jesus has in an earlier time with a woman who washes Jesus' feet with her hair and her tears. He, he accuses the host of the house of not doing that tradition of anointing the guest's head with oil. No, it wasn't the act of anointing that was unusual. What made it scandalous was the extravagance, the wastefulness of it. Think about it. A lifetime worth of this precious ointment. She breaks so that she can dispel the entire contents in honor and love of Jesus. It's no wonder that the disciples and others around looked at it and thought, what a waste this is. John tells us it was actually Judas who verbalized uh, his opposition to that. Judas, the one who was the treasurer. And John further goes on that the reason why Judas, Judas was really upset about this was that he was the treasurer for the group, and it would later become clear that Judas had been dipping into the till. Judas had been stealing uh, from this. And so it's ironic that he would be the one that would complain. There's definitely a lack of genuineness to this when he says that money could have been given to the poor. Maybe he had alternative reasons for wanting that money spent. But all he sees is a waste of time. And it's interesting. I think a lot of people, even in churches today, would say the same thing about something like that. I mean, especially in New England. There's, there's a reason why Yankee, our Yankees, New Englanders, are thought of as penny pinchers. I wouldn't call us cheap. We would use the word we're good stewards. We want to use our money well. And I agree with that. We should use our money well. But there's something about resources here that Jesus is touching at. What the followers of Jesus thought of as a great waste. Think of all the good we could have done with that money. 
Jesus has the exact opposite reaction. He says, leave her alone. Leave her alone. What she's done is a good thing. And, and look at this phrase. It says, she has done what she could. The disciples look at it and they say, what a waste. That's a year's worth of income we could have given to the poor. Jesus says, no, it was just what she could do. Jesus plays down the extravagant nature of it. She did it. Why, why did Mary pour this out in honor of Jesus? It's simple. She could. And so she chose to. It's a powerful thought. And it's so powerful that he says what she has done, he sees the deeper meaning in it. She may not be aware of this, but he knows what's going to transpire in the days ahead. And he sees great symbolism in this act of devotion and worship. She's prepared me for my burial. And so consequently, we are fulfilling Jesus' promise that in the days to come when the gospel's told, this story will be told too. It's fascinating, isn't it? Let's talk just for a minute about this apparent conflict. And I think that as Christians who want to care for our money and we all kind of want to always do the best thing we might have with such an extravagant act today. Jesus says the poor will always be with us. Is, is he dismissing that notion that we should care for the poor? Of course he isn't. Jesus over and over again throughout his teaching talks about our need to care for those who are in need, to minister, to reach out. He begins his ministry by proclaiming the gospel being rooted in our reaching out and caring for those in desperate need around us in the name of the Lord the year of the Lord's Jubilee. Now, Jesus isn't saying that we shouldn't care for the poor. We should. But here's what I think we need to understand. Jesus' view of finances was a kingdom view. It was God's view of finances. And in that setting, Jesus, who was God on earth, was mindful that all resources were his. He provided everything. Deuteronomy says he even provides your capacity to create wealth. That's his gift. So if you were Jesus and you owned all the resources of the world and it doesn't trouble you that someone would waste a full year's salary in a reckless act of gratitude, then it ought to tell you that in Christ's perspective there's plenty. If God's people were as generous as we were called to, there would be plenty to care for the poor that we wouldn't worry about it. We would be ministering out of overflow instead of scarcity. scarcity, And we could still dramatically honor the Lord with, with wasteful spending in the name of Jesus. Now, I'm not talking about uh, abundance. I'm talking about acts of extravagant declaration of love for the Lord. That's hard for us to wrap our heads around because we have a scarcity mentality. Will we have enough? And let's use everything we have and do the right thing. Sometimes the right thing is what Mary did. She did what she could. Have you ever been that extravagant in your generosity to the Lord? Just think about it. What would that look like if you trusted him? That there's plenty to care for everybody around who's in need because it's all God's in the first place. The reason why there isn't enough is because we're holding on to it instead of using it generously. Well, that's the first scene. Now we're going to move on, and there's this little transitional moment that continues the plot. Judas 
betrays Jesus. Verse 10, it says, Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priests to betray Jesus to them. They were delighted to hear this and promised to give him money. Now, we knew earlier in this passage that even though it was Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the religious leaders were looking for a way to arrest and to kill Jesus. By the way, let's just talk about the scene here. Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread was a week-long celebration that required every Jewish male, wherever they were in the world, to find their way to Jerusalem. During these three feast seasons, when the people of Israel were required to come back to Jerusalem, Jerusalem swelled from a small town of 50,000 people to a town of 250,000 people. So it was packed. And it was a good opportunity for the disciples to deal with Jesus because he was also there. He had been avoiding Jerusalem because of their schemes. Now he was there, but yet he was popular, and they didn't want to lose control of the people. It was all about control. We want to get rid of Jesus because he's taking our power away, but we don't want to do it in a way that we lose our power. So they're looking for a way. So imagine the joy that they found when one of Jesus' own decides to turn against Jesus. I, I suggest that this may have been the straw that broke the camel's back. You know, the, last, the last thing for Judas, whose ideas about who Jesus was were very different than what it turned out. And we already know that he was stealing from the, from the pot. Sometimes Judas is portrayed as a sympathetic character. That's not the case in the Bible. He is not a sympathetic character. He's a sad character. He's a tragic character character. But Judas made his own decisions. We'll explore that in a little bit later. Now we turn to the Last Supper, and I'm going to begin reading at verse 12. On the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, when it was customary to sacrifice the Passover lamb, Jesus' disciples asked him, where do you want us to go and make preparations for you to eat the Passover? And so he sent two of his disciples telling them, go into the city and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. Say to the owner of the house he enters, the teacher asks, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large room upstairs, furnished and ready. Make preparations for us there. The disciples left, went into the city, and found things just as Jesus had told them. And so they prepared the Passover. Now when evening came, Jesus arrived with the twelve, and while they were reclining at the table, eating, he said, Truly I tell you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They were saddened, and, and one by one they said to him, Surely you don't mean me. It is the one of the twelve, he replied, one who dips bread into the bowl with me. The Son of Man will go just as it is written about Him, but woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when He had given thanks, He broke it, and He gave it to His disciples, saying, Take it. This is My body. And then He took a cup, and when He had given thanks, He gave it to them, and they all drank from it. This is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. He said to them, Truly, I tell you, 
I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And next week we'll pick up the story of what happens in the Garden of Gethsemane and the arrest of Jesus. In the Gospel of John, John devotes five chapters to the Passover feast, the last Passover. Mark devotes around five paragraphs. It's typical of his writing. He has a story in mind to tell, and he tells just enough of the events, and we've gone through a lot of events with very few words in this gospel. He tells just enough to help the storyline go forward. John is lingering at important things. In fact, I encourage you to read from John 13 to John 17, all the way through there, maybe even this week in your devotional, because what Jesus says in that night to his disciples is epic. It's eternally significant, but that's not Mark's priority here. Mark is focusing on two things that happened during the Passover feast, and the first is the exposing of a betrayer among them. That's an important thing that we understand because Jesus is aware of this. He knows what's taking place because it's all part of God's plan. And then the second is the institution of what we have come to call the Lord's Supper. This is when, in history, the Passover meal becomes the Lord's Supper. The Passover table becomes the Lord's table because he takes very familiar elements of the Passover feast. Uh, you may know what the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread is. You may not. So let me just give you briefly a, a story of what it is. The Passover celebrates the night of deliverance from Egypt when God saved the children of Israel. The Passover means that there was blood. There were lambs that were sacrificed, and there was blood from each lamb spread over the doorposts of the houses of the children of Israel in Egypt. And the judgment of God came on Egypt for their unwillingness to free God's people. And wherever the blood was on the doorposts, the angel of death passed over. That's what the word Passover means. He passed over. God's judgment passed over. And those in Egypt who, did not, who were not covered by the blood, their firstborn died. And as a result, uh, the children of Israel were finally freed from their slavery. Passover commemorates that. And they tell the story. Why is this night unlike any other night? And they tell the story as they go through the meal. And there's a moment where they break bread. Bread was a, a beautiful thing to the Jewish people. It was precious. It was symbolic of the stuff of life. And you never used a knife on bread, by the way. You would always tear it. And so when the Scripture says that Jesus tore it, He broke it, and He blessed it, that's all part of the, of the Seder, the Passover. And then what Jesus does is He gives that bread, which had been part of the Passover feast for generation upon generation, he helps them understand why God instituted it because he, he explains what it has always been symbolic of. He says, this bread is my body which is broken 
So from now on, as you eat it, you remember me. By the way, the unleavened bread begins from this point on, and the week-long celebration of unleavened bread celebrates their departure from Egypt. And the reason why the bread was unleavened because it celebrates the fact that in order to have bread to travel, they left so quickly that the bread didn't have a chance to rise, and so it was unleavened bread. And so they would commemorate that, those first days in the wilderness in Liberty during that week. Later on in the Passover, there is a cup of blessing. The, the presider pronounces a blessing over this cup. And it's that cup that Jesus takes. And he says, this cup represents my blood, which is shed for you. I want you to understand what's happening here. Jesus is not bringing new meaning to the Passover. He's explaining God's meaning. He's pointing to the fact that generations ago, God put in place a celebration that would be in place so that this very time in history, what the children of Israel would celebrate, they could see that all of that pointed to the one who is the true Lamb of God. Who like Mary's alabaster jar would be broken and spilled out. This extravagant act of God's love spilling the very blood of His Son in an act of love for us. See, you see what Mark is doing? It's all symbols. It's beautiful. And so we remember. That's why today we still celebrate the Lord's table. And we remember that it was always the plan. God had put all of this in place in eternity past. And He'd left sign markers all along the way pointing to it. All you had to do was look through faith through those actions and see that they were always pointing to Jesus, always pointing to the true Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world. These are the last two events before Jesus goes off and before the night is done, he'll be arrested and uh, we'll follow the rest of the Passion Week as we go. I want to focus on one very interesting verse uh, that shows us, gives us an opportunity to look at how God's sovereign plan works alongside man's free will and choices. And that's verse 21, where it says, Jesus is saying this. He's talking about the fact that, a reminder here, that there's going to be a betrayer from among the twelve. And then he says this, the Son of Man will go just as it is written about him. So let me just phrase that. What Jesus is saying is, God has had a plan. It has been written, and I just want to remind you, we have talked over and over again about how all of the Old Testament in particular, God's interaction with His covenant people Israel is all a foreshadowing, is all a prophetic foreshadowing of the Messiah who would come. And the prophets did say that this Messiah would be crushed. He would be bruised for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities, Isaiah said. The punishment that brought us peace would be upon Him and by His wounds we will be healed. Isaiah wrote that centuries before this moment 
about the Messiah. And what Jesus is saying is that what was written about me is going to take place. And he's saying that connected to the role that Judas will play in betraying him. In other words, it's important that Jesus is turned over to his enemies so that God's eternal plan could unfold. But yet he goes on and he says this, but woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. And so here we have in a single verse, Jesus talking about God's sovereign plan, which is unstoppable and will take place, and uses the choices and the events of human beings throughout history to accomplish his plan. And yet at the same time, those of us making those choices are clearly responsible for those choices. And so that, that just brings up the whole classic debate of God's sovereign will, predestination, and man's free will uh, and election. Is it God's will or is it man's will? And we, the way most of us think about God's plan for our life is sort of as the safeguard. We want to go about making our decisions, and we want God's plan to kick in when we make bad decisions. <laughs> When the decisions we made are going to get us in trouble, we want God to kind of swoop in and, and make sure no harm comes to us. And so we don't really want God's will. We want God's protection for our will. And so there have been for generations these debates. What does God's sovereign will, how does that relate to my will, my choices? And uh, here's what I think. I think the Bible doesn't, worry about what we think is a contradiction. The Bible makes it very clear that God has a plan and that nothing can thwart that plan. And he uses the events in human history to bring that plan about. But that's very different than saying that God orchestrates and intends and causes all of the actions of men. What it does mean is that his sovereign plan occurs in spite or with those choices. But the Bible is also very clear. We make choices. We have a free will, and we answer for that free will. We get to make our choices, and we get to live with the results. And so that's important that we kind of look at this. God, God says, yeah, I've got a betrayer. It's a very tragic thing. It's sad. Woe to the one who does this because he's chosen to do it on his own. But yet, God is going to use this. What was written about me will take place. God doesn't take responsibility for Judah's choices, but he uses it for his sovereign plan. And what that shows us in this chapter, really, if we were to look at one of the underlying threads in this chapter, it would be about God's sovereign work in history, God's eternal plan that he intends to do and he brings about that no man can bring an end to or to keep from happening. But yet all along this, we see not only God's sovereign plan taking place in the Passover and the timing of that, in the way Mary is moved to do this incredible gesture of not only preparing Jesus for his death, but being a symbol of Jesus' own ultimate being broken and poured out. In all the amazing timing that God set up generations ago to take place now, we see God's sovereign plan taking place. But also, all along here, people are making their choices. There are decisions that are being made. 
And so let's look at some of those choices. Some are following Jesus. They don't understand all that's taking place. It's the 11, it's the women who also followed, it's many of the disciples. They're following along, they're troubled, probably very confused, but they're doing their best, they're following Jesus in faith. Some are plotting against Jesus. They've made their choices. They've decided we're going to work against this man. We're not going to believe what he claims to be. We're going to call him evil and a heretic and worthy of death. Some are betraying Jesus. They came into their life with Jesus with their own expectations and their own needs and their own moral brokenness. And that wins when they find out that Jesus' plans for the Messiah and God's plans are not theirs. That's, that's Judas. Some, some have chosen to come against. That's called, in modern terms, a deconversion. Think about it. There are people out there who, when Jesus doesn't meet up to their expectations for what life in Him should be about, they not only walk away from the faith, they become aggressively antagonistic and work against the faith in company with Judas. And then there's one who is worshiping Jesus. <laughs> That's Mary. She may not have a full picture of this moment, but she knows the weight of what Jesus has been saying about what's coming. She's heard him say, the Son of Man is going to be betrayed. He's going to be arrested. He's going to be put to death. And he's going to rise again. And she knows the time is coming. And she responds from her heart in adoration and worship. All of these things were people's choices. And yet in the midst of it, we see God's sovereign plan unfolding. And we see in the midst of it these amazing truths that uh, have been set, the stage has been set for for many thousands of years and into eternity past. We understand that Jesus is the true Passover. He is our Passover. He has been sacrificed for us. Jesus is the true Lamb of God, broken and spilled out for us. And we ultimately see, as Jesus says in his own words, the bringing of what God's eternal plan had always been, a new covenant. Not just a covenant for a select people, the Jewish people, that was a means of God setting the stage for this new covenant that would be a promise of redemption for the whole world, for all of those who would believe, for, for not just a people, but for all people. All people coming together under the blood of Jesus, becoming a new people. It's just powerful to think about this, that God's plan is unfolding all along, even as people are making their choices about it and then experiencing the result of those choices. And so I just want to share a couple of final thoughts related to that, just that idea about it. And uh, the first is, is that you need to just trust God about His eternal plan. God will see to His plans for the world and for you. That's His job. Sometimes we get so caught up in saying, how do I know what the will of God is for me? God's got that. We often feel like God's will is more about our choices. God, show me what I need to choose right now about this or that or this. 
God's plan for you is less about your specific choices. Here's a real key. God's plan for you is about your redemption. That's what he's primarily after. Not about your circumstances. And so even now as we're struggling, a lot of us are in a lot of fear. Maybe you, this coronavirus has hit home to some of you. It's, it's come close. And there's a lot of fear and concern. And you're wondering, where is God's plan in this? What I can tell you is that God wants to use this in a redemptive way in your life. That, I know, is God's will. See? He's not after your comfort. He's after your character. And when we talk about redemption, we don't just mean about getting our ticket to heaven. That's, that's important. Our eternal destiny matters. And you may be thinking an awful lot about eternity right now because of the fears that are related with this outbreak. And I'd like you to see that as God tugging on your heart to get that answer right, to make the right choice in terms of Jesus. God could use that for redeeming you, making you his child. But redemption is a bigger thing than that. Redemption is the constant work of God in the lives of his children to continue to conform us into the image of God, to continue to chip away all the parts of our fallen nature and our selfishness and our bad habits and perspective. It's called sanctification. That's also a part of redemption. And this, God's going to do that. And so when you really worry about how you know God's will, what is God's will in this? Leave God's will to Him. He'll take care of that. You see to your choices. I find myself talking a lot to college students these days, especially our seniors who are just struggling with, well, what now? You know, I've known what I'm going to do for four years. What about right now? How do I know what the next step is? Job, career, you know, marriage partner. How do I make all this? How do I know what God wants for me? And I'll often say to them, you know, God's more concerned not with the specific choices you make, but the way you make those choices. He's concerned with how we go about those choices, that we make them in a godly way. And we trust that God has his plan for us. God's sovereign plan will take place in your life. You make the best godly choices you can. You go about making those choices well. And above all things, make the right choice about Jesus. We see people that are choosing one side of the cross and the other. We see those that are choosing to oppose Jesus. And we see those that are choosing to follow and worship Jesus. And that choice is the most important one of all. Choose one way, and you find catastrophe, you find death. Choose the other way, you find life, you find love, you find hope. So let's make the right choice, even in this moment. Let's trust God in his plans. Let's let him do a redemptive work in us. Sometimes we need these limiting moments that knock out our plans so that we can get humbled about them and God can enter into that point and show us a new path and do a redemptive work in our life. So let me pray about that and then we're going to close in prayer, close in worship. Father, we thank you for this passage. I, um, I look at these moments and Mark looks at them briefly in order to help us see their part in the greater story. But what I see is amazing symbolism an alabaster jar, a precious jar with precious ointment broken and spilled out in an act of worship for you. And I say to myself, Father, may I be so 
devoted to you. May I be so extravagant in my generosity to you and to others in your name. And may I be grateful that you were just as extravagant, even more extravagant, in pouring yourself out for us and uh, in bringing forgiveness of sins. We look at an ancient celebration and realize that all along it pointed to Jesus. And as we think about the bread that we hold as a body of Christ and the cup that we drink, we're reminded that you had a plan to save the world. You were faithful. You were sovereignly faithful to that plan. And because of that, we who make the choice to follow you, to worship you, can be called sons and daughters of God. Thank you, Father, for that. In Jesus' name, amen.